Okay, well, I wanted to welcome you to the 2010 joint potluck with the Triangle Vegetarian Society and the Ethical Humanist Society of the Triangle. Um, as we've been doing for, I believe, 12 years, 10 or 12 years, something like that. Um, it's uh, one of my favorite events we do all year. Um, I've asked the panelists, and they've had about a month to think about this, to address the complex question, what do you think are the two or three most important ethical issues of our time, and what, as individuals, can or should we do about those issues? <clears throat> now, it's about 8.30 at night, and any one of the panelists could probably spend two or three hours addressing one topic, to say nothing about two or three topics. So this is kind of the speed dating version of the talk. Uh, I feel uh, a little, um, um, I hope I'm not being harsh, but I unfortunately will have to time you. Otherwise, we'd be here very late. So what, the way I'd like to, the, the way I propose to run it is to go through each of the panelists to take 30 seconds to one minute just to say my name is and this is who I am and this is the group I'm with, some basic introduction. And then we will uh, start with Chris Kamen. And, and by the way, our panelists today are, I've arranged them in order, somebody from Ethical Humanist Society of the Triangle, then Triangle Vegetarian Society. So we have first Chris Kamen and then Callie Gerber, uh, and then uh, James Coley, uh, Jimmy Efford, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but you could correct me when you get the mic, Jen Broughton, and uh, Lauren Hart are our panelists. And I thank each of you very much for taking the time to prepare your comments. So after uh, a quick minute of introdu introductions, then we'll start with Chris, and Chris will have six minutes. Six. All so right. six minutes. I'll give you an extra minute. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I'll give you a one-minute warning. The minute the time goes fast. After those six minutes of addressing the question, we'll throw it open for very brief uh, questions. But they're meant to be, could you repeat that URL? Or did you say this? I didn't quite hear you. But not a complex dialogue. And I'll, I'll cut you off if we get there. It'll be very tempting. Hold on to those questions, OK? Hold on to those questions. After all six have had a chance to go through, and I'll make a, some summarizing comments, then we'll throw it open for 15 minutes or so of, of more in-depth question and answer. And at that point, we'll probably break, but a number of you will want to continue the dialogue, and that's fine. Anybody, it's late, feel free to leave when you need to, but we'll formally break the meeting at that point. So if you need, if you need to leave and feel you want to wait till the meeting ends, that would be a good time as well. But then the, the dialogue can continue as long as the panelists are willing to stick around and, and you are. I will ask people to help with some cleanup um, as well at that point, okay? So with that, why don't we very quickly go around, starting with Chris, and just very brief introductions. Okay. Uh, my name is Chris Kamen. I uh, am a retired uh, employee from UNC Chapel Hill. I uh, retired about a, a year, 18 months ago. I was worked uh, for the Information Technology Services Department, so I was involved in IT support for about uh, 26 years there, and uh, so I've been enjoying my retirement. I've been a member of the uh, Ethical Humanist Society since the mid-90s, um, uh, or perhaps even a little bit earlier than that. Uh, so um, I'm not a founding member, but I've been there a little while. And I really value the organization because it's taught me the value of community, of listening to other people, of uh, uh, trying to stretch myself a little bit to uh, understand. Even though we, we tend to be left of center, uh, we have enough diversity of opinion in the society that, that uh, it does pay to listen to people and learn from uh, what they have to say. Okay. Uh, my name's Callie Gerber, and I'm an animal lawyer. 
I have my own animal law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I started about two and a half years ago. I've been an attorney for about 15 years. I'm also going to be teaching animal law for the first time at Campbell Law School this spring. They're adding a brand new course uh, that will deal with just those issues. So I'm, I've been a member of the Triangle Vegetarian Society for a couple years now, and I found it to be a wonderful community, uh, especially helping me grow uh, a lot more of my vegan meals. My name is uh, James Coley, and I'd like to request that if I say anything that's factually inaccurate or silly, <laughs> that it be edited out. <laughs> the autobiographical question that was posed in organizing this is, why are you a member of the Ethical Humanist Society of the Triangle? And my answer is that I was someone who was raised here in the South as a moderate Baptist and thought my way out of it and became an atheist. I have some fond memories of some of the values that this Baptist church, which was a moderate, not a fundamentalist church, uh, taught, and of the good aspects of a congregation. Well, the Ethical Humanist Society of the Triangle is a congregation and has the advantages of that kind of group, but it uses ethics or moral values rather than God as the organizing principle or theme for the congregation. I have a master's degree in philosophy from UNC Chapel Hill, and I've taught courses in theoretical and applied ethics. So there's an obvious connection there to an ethical humanist society. These days I'm working in IT at the School of Social Work at UNC Chapel Hill, and I host an ethics talk show that's associated with the Ethical Humanist Society of the Triangle, and that is broadcast from WCOM, the community radio station in Carborough. Which is available uh, through the web to just Google WCOM and you'll find it. Jimmy. I'm uh, Jimmy Eifert and I am a um, epidemiologist and longtime vegetarian vegan. And part of what I bring to this discussion perhaps is um, ethics concerning the health aspects of vegetarianism, but not uh, exclusively that. I'm Jan Broughton, and I've been a member of the Ethical Society for over 10 years. Um, I discovered it through an ad in the newspaper, and it seemed to have an interesting speaker. And I went and just found a group of people that matched my beliefs and uh, ideas uh, almost completely, and I've been very happy with my association with them. I have, uh, I'm a retired software developer and have recently become active in our national organization. I'm uh, secretary to the board, and it's been great to meet people all across the country who share uh, our beliefs and uh, who are working to um, make the world a better place. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Lauren Hart, and um, I'm a TVS member for about four years, and uh, I really enjoy the social aspect of it and, and uh, the events like these. Um, I've also been to the Ethical Human Society a few times and have enjoyed that um, and saw that y'all are uh, hosting the movie Dirt coming up in November, and I'm looking forward to maybe checking that out. That's an excellent film about our soil and what's happening to it. Um, 
I've been in the area for about 12 years, ever since coming to UNC as an undergraduate. And um, I do a lot of advocacy grassroots level with human rights and animal rights with a focus on farmed animal issues and promoting vegetarianism. And I'd just like to say thanks to TVS and to Dilip and to Joseph and to everyone else who's made this event possible. Okay, so with that, again, the question is, what are the two or three most important ethical issues of our time, and what, as individuals, can or should we do about them? So six minutes. Right. Chris came in. Um, I have uh, uh, three uh, uh, concerns, uh, political and cultural polarization in society today, uh, too much information, and the rise of misinformation is my second top theme, and then three, uh, elections, money, and power. Um, politics and cultural polarization. Has politics become more polarized in the last two years? I believe it has, but the roots of this did not start in 2008, but go way back. Let's go back in time, 46 years. In 1964, President Johnson trounced Barry Goldwater in a landslide presidential election in a victory against extremism. Goldwater countered that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Today, I think Goldwater might win a presidential election. Then, 1968 saw major changes from 1964. The silent majority became a, a potent political force to counter the rebellion on the left. What were the major factors in this abrupt switch? The Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the rise of the new left in politics, music, and culture. Then, in 1973, the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade, which has become one of the battles, major battles of the Cultural War. Of course, what led to this decision was no easy road, but it appeared at last that the issue was decided for good. Then, in the last 24 years, we have seen the rise of the gay pride movement and the push to legalize gay marriage. Augmenting, or at least reflecting uh, this cultural war, is another major uh, change in the news media. The old model was uh, the major networks was to compete to present the most objective news uh, uh, that was the old model. Uh, the, the new model is more of a postmodern model. We now have Fox News on the right and MSNBC on the left. The model is to present the news and what it means within the context of values, making judgments about the way news is presented uh, based on the facts, based, based on the values of the market you're trying to reach. In other words, um, news is now run on a, as a business model. In that perspective and in reality, Fox is the most watched cable news network and rivals the three big networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. As a counter to conservative Fox News, NBC has found a solid, although less popular, group of liberals and progressives who yearn to hear news from their perspective. Um, of those remaining stations that attempt to provide an objective view of the news, CNN and public television appear to be the last two holdouts. Um, who will prevail is anyone's guess. What is the logical progression of this polarization? Are we heading towards a civil war? Well, this seem, may seem extreme, but let's look at the town hall meetings of August 2009. Uh, those, those had people with guns coming to meetings, uh, people yelling and screaming. Uh, it was uh, quite a shock to me, actually. Um, you, you may also uh, hear people talking about exercising their Second Amendment rights. Uh, in fact, in Chatham County, I had the uh, uh, chair of the Democratic Party was told at a gas station that uh, if uh, the uh, uh, Democrats win the election, the uh, conservatives will begin exercising their second choice, uh, second amendment uh, uh, 
ability to to shoot that uh, it was pretty pretty scary. Um, so this cultural war um, is 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 like it's it's culminating. I think it's coming to a head, uh, and and the question is is what do we do about that? And I'll answer that um, if I don't run out of time. Um, see, I've got two minutes left. Uh, the rise of information and disinformation. The rise of the World Wide Web has also helped to fan the cultural wars. How? Well, can you spell blog? Um, how about anyone's ability to post anything to the web, as well as the rise of the Google search engine, which allows anyone to find any information they want on the Internet? Um, we now see a wide dissemination of information by a wide variety of groups, what I call the democratization of information. Uh, while this is good, on the other hand, it's led to the rise of disinformation. You have one minute. Okay. Um, boy, time sure flies when you're having fun. <laughs> um, uh, one of the cases and points uh, I wanted to uh, mention was the um, uh, Shirley Sherrod story, where uh, she made a statement many years uh, about uh, her past prejudices. Uh, it got put on the Internet, and it was totally misconstrued. Um, that, that is very unfortunate. Even President Obama jumped in and, and uh, contributed to her firing. Uh, most recently, I think we've seen the uh, Juan, Juan Williams uh, talk about uh, his fears. And although he wasn't advocating uh, anti-Muslim uh, attitudes, he was just expressing his fears on the TV show. Uh, he's, he was fired by um, NPR. And so this is contributing to an atmosphere uh, that conservatives say liberals are, are hypocrites because they do not honor their values of diversity. Um, um, I'm going to skip elections, money, and power because I'm almost uh, out of time. Um, I have 42 seconds to tell you what we're going to do about these things. <laughs> um, I, I do think we, we need to return to objectivity as a, as a uh, value rather than playing just to our own interest groups. Um, I believe that democracy is based on the ability to listen to other people and hear what they have to say and work towards compromise. And if we continue playing to our bases, then we continue the process of polarization, and I do think we're going to see uh, violence at the end of that. Um, about ten seconds. Um, and use your pocketbook to reward uh, people, uh, companies, organizations that do try to provide objective news. Um, okay, that's my timer. Um, <laughs> buy, buy books that, uh, uh, from authors who are trying to provide an objective analysis. Uh, reward uh, National Public Radio if you still like them. Reward uh, uh, public television. Reward those people with, from your pocketbook who do try to speak to the middle and do try to speak to objective uh, uh, analysis of the news. Okay, let me just take a quick 30-second summary. So Chris feels there's three major issues. One is uh, increasing political and cultural polarization uh, in America, I am assuming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second one is there's too much misinformation, and then there's uh, election money and and power. Uh, He feels that uh, the way to resolve these is to get back to objectivity instead of trying to just push your own issues, try to be objective, and reward those who are doing that well. Is that a fair summary? Mm -hmm. Any quick clarifying comments? Otherwise, Kelly. It's kind of funny being up here, a lawyer talking about ethics. Lots of people you expect to be on the board. Uh, I'm supposed to talk about the, the two or three biggest issues that I see facing our community, and of course this is a very personal type thing. You know, there's so many different issues, it'd be hard to narrow it down to just two. If you asked me a month ago, it might be totally different than what it is now. 
Uh, I feel one of the largest issues facing us is a sense of detachment or loss of community. No longer feel that we belong. Certainly, some of the groups, such as those that are here today, I, I'm kind of preaching to the choir, uh, do have a sense of community and do have a sense of belonging for the things that are important to us. But so many of us live in places. Even four years ago, my neighborhood that I lived in, I didn't know my neighbors. I didn't care about my neighbors. I didn't, you know, if I saw someone breaking in their house or their house burning down, I would have called the police. But you know, I was not actively involved. And this, I think, contributes to a lot of our problems in that you don't, it's so overwhelming to see problems that are in the community as a whole that you're not a part of. So if you see a child starving in front of your house or an animal that's hurt in front of your house, you're likely to do something about it because it's right in your front yard and you feel that you can do something about it. However, when you hear about people or a large number of children or animals that are in another country and the problem seems so overwhelming and it's not part of the people that you are related to or close to and it's not going to directly affect your daily life, that seems sometimes to be overwhelming for us. I feel that we're getting overwhelmed a lot because we're not feeling that connectedness, that we are all connected to each other and we are all part of the same community. And when we help our neighbor or when we help someone across the world, we really help ourselves. That's one of our very large issues that's facing us. The second issue I chose was personal responsibility. I guess especially in my job, I see so many people that make excuses for their conduct. You know, they think they're doing everything right and everyone else is screwing up the planet. You know, I, I might be a vegetarian, so that means I don't need a low, low water thing on my shower because I'm already saving a bunch of water by not eating meat. Well, you know, it's not either or. It's everything. And we need to be accountable for our own actions in everything that we do. Sometimes that also can be overwhelming because you nitpick every little thing you do. You know, what kind of car do I drive and did I let it run too long or was I on the cell phone too much today or had the computer on too long or did I turn my TV on? You can get into micromanaging. But if you just have a sense of consciousness about your actions and if people as a whole had more of a sense of consciousness about their actions, consciousness and interaction with other people that they come in contact to, whether it's the grocery store attendant, I'm always thankful when somebody checks me out at the grocery store because I don't want to be the person out there having to grow my food. I love the convenience of being able to go out and pick food in a grocery store and take it home and cook it or go to a restaurant. So I try to be thankful for that. You know, please and thank, thank you, even if I'm in a drive-thru or at a gas station because I genuinely am grateful for the contribution they are making to my life. And I think when people feel needed and thanked for what they contribute, it helps build that sense of community and it helps us be stronger in what we're doing for each other and feel a little bit more of that unity, kind of that we're all on the same team, if you will. That's it. Okay, well, thank you. Or under, so that's fine. So if I could summarize, uh, the, the two issues are a loss of community and connectivity and, uh, and lacking personal responsibility and the suggestions that Callie made for that we could remediate this with would be helping others, acknowledging others, being compassionate, and realizing we're part of a larger whole. Is that a fair summary? Any quick clarifying comments? James. Oh, sorry. If you get tired of being a lawyer, that's what you do when you're a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> so the comment was, if you get tired of being a lawyer, you can become a kindergarten teacher because you teach that there as well. James. Instead of talking about two or three issues per se, what I decided to do was to try to 
decide for myself what the three worst vices or evils of our time are, and uh, the first is war. I've, I've thought often that war must be the worst possible thing that could ever happen, or the, the most barbaric uh, and horrifying thing that people could do to each other. But I think there are things that are worse than war, very, very rarely. Like Noam Chomsky and Barack Obama and many others, I'm not a pacifist. I do not believe that it is always morally wrong to use military force. I just think that there's a very, very high standard that is almost never met, but that must be met to morally justify the use of military force. Self-defense of a nation-state, avoiding or ameliorating the effects of a humanitarian uh, catastrophe are among the reasons that might justify the use of military force. You know, there's a quote that's often associated with Einstein. I suppose that he said it. He said that uh, you cannot both prepare for and prevent war. And I think there's a tendency to think that anything that Albert Einstein said about any subject must be right, must be wise. Well, he was a charming old guy. Uh, He was a great physicist. But just because Albert Einstein says something doesn't make it true, except, of course, when he said very good things about ethical culture. Um, I think that uh, just because I'm a liberal and conservatives say things that I might initially disagree with, that doesn't mean that they're wrong. And one of the things that I have changed my mind about over the years in talking with conservatives and others is that I think that there is is some truth to the claim that sometimes the use of military force can, in the long term, promote peace. Just as the controlled use of violence by law enforcement can help prevent violence on the individual scale. Now, the problem with just war theory is that it's so frequently abused and uh, mis and misrepresentations are made in specific instances so that uh, the uh, appearance can be given of a justification for the war when uh, there really isn't one. And, of course, uh, the case that comes to mind is the invasion of Iraq. There was no moral justification for the invasion of Iraq under just war theory. Um, uh, The uh, hyperbolic uh, comparisons from both the left and the right about... uh, public figures is annoying. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, I saw a poster recently that said, you know, Obama isn't Hitler, Bush isn't Hitler, Hitler was Hitler. But there is, there is a connection, though. There is a legitimate connection between the George W. Bush administration and one aspect of what Adolf Hitler did. When Adolf Hitler invaded Poland, the reason he gave was exactly the same reason that George W. Bush gave for invading Iraq. Yes, they haven't invaded us, but they might do it later. So uh, I would say that war is one of the great evils of our time, and one thing that the individual can do is to uh, oppose what's been known as, come to be known as the Bush Doctrine. Remember, Sarah Palin didn't know what it was when it was one of the most significant things. Uh, and um, the Bush Doctrine, of course, is the idea that the United States can start a war. Uh, and I think supporting the United Nations is also a good thing individuals can do. But I would not recommend to individuals that they be pacifists because I don't know that in the long run being a pacifist actually 
is beneficial in preventing war. Second great evil is greed. If you look at the uh, the gap between those who uh, that that the very small minority in this country who have a great deal of wealth and everybody else, uh, the inequality of wealth is as bad as it's been since I think the Great Depression. I think it's it's it it, it was. It's as bad as it was just before the, the Great Depression. Um, and this indicates, I think, that there's a lot of greed somewhere in the country. Chris was talking about the culture wars and the partisan polarization. Let me try to make a contribution to that. Uh, the Tea Party folks and others uh, sometimes say that liberal Democrats are socialists, and in fact, I think Democrats and Republicans both believe in Capitalism, they just believe in different forms of capitalism. Democrats believe that the market is sometimes wrong and that capitalism must be made to work through the involvement of government for labor, consumers, and investors. It seems to me that uh, Republicans believe that the market is almost always right and capitalism must be made to work through the involvement of government for investors. That seems to be the big difference. It's hard to say what greed is. Um, I don't think that everyone should have the same, but um, certainly a concern for inequality is important, and a, com a, a complete lack of concern for in inequality and wealth uh, may be part of a defining condition for greed. What the individual can do, I think, includes supporting a return to progressive taxation in this country. There's been a huge change in that regard. And finally, uh, one of the great evils or vices, I think, is faith. Now, when I say faith, what I mean by that is believing something, not because of your most sincere efforts to seek the truth through evidence and reason, but for some other reason, irrelevant to the search for truth, such as an emotional attachment to that belief or because some authority in an institution has told you you have to believe these things. Furthermore, faith means that even when you do get evidence or reasons which are contrary to what you believe on faith, you still believe it. In fact, your belief may be strengthened because you feel as though your faith has to push back against the evidence. I think that this is a great intellectual and moral vice. And the, uh, and the last thing that I would say uh, is that, uh, you know, sometimes when I say these things, people say, no, 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 you misunderstand the nature of faith. This is what I mean by faith. Uh, you may mean something else by the word, and then we could have a separate discussion about how you ought to use the word. But in particular... I would say that one thing an individual can do is not to confuse faith with hope. These are two very different things. Faith is believing something without evidence. Hope is a feeling that you have to have in life. So I'm all for hope, but not for faith. Okay, let me quickly summarize. James feels there's three major vices that we struggle with. One is war, another is greed, another is faith. Things we can do about them are to oppose preemptive war, to support integrative organizations like the UN, uh, support progressive taxation for more equality, uh, and uh, don't confuse hope with faith. Is that a 30-second good summary? It's an excellent one. Okay. Any quick clarifying comments? If not, Jimmy. I'd like to um, expand on some of the topics of the last speaker and put it into a slightly different context. Um, I also see war as something that um, is very profound in nature, but 
not so much the emphasis on war against other peoples, but war amongst our own people. And this relates to the idea of the state of um, health poverty, to where we have actually declared war on the people amongst ourselves. We have created a society to where we are at war um, in terms of what we eat, um, how we uh, educate our children as far as nutrition goes. And these are um, have a price tag in terms of lives probably as great as the wars that we see in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other wars in the past. The other is greed, and that relates to um, determinants of health. There's social determinants, behavioral determinants, but one of the determinants that we often neglect is corporate determinants of health. And we look at um, some of the issues at the forefront of health today, obesity, cardiovascular disease. These are um, areas where corporations have played an instrumental war in making people sick. Yeah, think about that for a second. Every time you go into a low socioeconomic neighborhood and see what you can buy in a store, can you buy fresh vegetables? Can you find foods that are salt-free? Can you buy anything that's healthy? Chances are you really can't. Um, does that make corporate um, CEOs evil people? Probably not. Uh, education, can that play a role? Probably yes. I, I think here it's important for corporations to see a win-win model. And I'm convinced that there's ways that corporations can make money and still sell healthy products. But they have to be educated on models that work you know, to do that. Uh, it's often the easy route to um, sell junk food that's very addictive on the scale of heroin, basically. Legalize heroin when you sell a lot of the sugary soft drinks, high fructose uh, beverages, and etc. And the... Um, and unfortunately, um, being an epidemiologist with a lot of statistics in my background, I really don't count the three very well, so I'm going to keep it at two items. <laughs> okay, thanks, Jimmy. So my uh, quick summary is that uh, uh, the two major issues that he's identified are war amongst ourselves in terms of our health and poverty, misinformation, as well as greed. And uh, things that we should do about that are we should uh, make sure that those who distribute health and food do so positively and make sure we have good choices. Is that a fair yes. summary? Okay. Any quick clarifying questions? Jan. The topic I chose to speak about is intolerance. And it comes in many aspects these days, and, and I've chosen three different uh, problems in society that uh, I believe are based on intolerance. Uh, I think I, when I explained what ethical humanism was about, I, I spoke about our belief in the worth and dignity of each human being and the importance of our relationships to each other. In the area of 
religious intolerance. We see that in our current uh, involvement in uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, just the seeming barriers to understanding of the uh, nature of what these religious beliefs actually are, the way they're exaggerated by fundamentalists uh, to create these conflicts. Uh, and the way it's been brought home just recently by uh, Christian fundamentalists uh, the proposal by the minister in, in Florida to burn the Koran in, in uh, a protest against the beliefs of Muslims, just painting a broad brush uh, of belief against a whole, whole group due to uh, you know, misunderstanding and, and just a, a uh, kind of refusal to listen to what actually is uh, based on. Um, and another aspect of this is the uh, seeming fear of people who do not hold beliefs uh, in a supreme being. Um, the problems that most of the country seems to have with, with atheists and non-believers, the fact that people won't will say that they, I think it's like 78% of the people would not vote for an atheist in office. And uh, I think in the, there's still six states that have laws on the books that say, including North Carolina, that say that atheists can't hold office. Now, I, it's one of those things that probably would never be <laughs> um, enforced and would soon find itself in the courts if it was, but it's the kind of things that are long-seated beliefs. The other thing, uh, issue with intolerance is the, uh, and it's been in the news recently, is gender identity. The bullying of these young people uh, who either identify as gay or others identify them as gay has caused these uh, teenage suicides and the, the trauma that goes with that kind of uh, unacceptance. Uh, I think it's been very inspiring to see the people who have spoken out on, on that issue and have gone public with uh, support for kids who feel alone. This um, whole, you know, it will get better movement is very positive. Uh, the changes that are going on right now with the uh, don't ask, don't tell um, policies in the armed services uh, find very interesting that the command structure can say we have to do this carefully. Um, it's going to just create all sorts of problems. And you hear the anecdotal stories of the people who are serving are having no problem with it. 
the uh, in fact there were a lot of stories about friends going up to other people oh you can come out now you know you, you don't have to be careful and they're saying ah you know <laughs> not so soon uh, so that there's a disconnect between people's actual acceptance and what uh, the official word is my third point was going to be political beliefs but Chris covered that um, pretty well the lack of civil discourse and, and these exaggerated positions and demonization that has happened in politics. What can be done? Don't tolerate this behavior. If you see it, don't just sit back and let it happen around you. You can use modeling behavior to counteract an offense. You can, you know, um, without being offensive yourself, uh, middle school principal I knew used to use the kind of I don't understand method. He would have to be good, you know, nice to all the parents, even ones who came in and were acting bigoted, and, and someone would make a statement, and, and you know, oh, I, I don't understand, what did you say, you know, what did you mean, you know, to really make this person think and not accept what he was saying without being offensive. Write letters to the paper, blog, protest, add your name to newspaper ads, that are in support of tolerant positions. Uh, these are some of the things that can be be done. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. My uh, 30-second Reader's Digest summary is uh, Jan identified uh, three issues, uh, all focused on intolerance. One is war. Another is fear of those who believe something other than what you believe. And, and another one is intolerance towards gender, people with different gender identities. And what we can do about that is not to tolerate intolerance, do something about it, write, protest, communicate. Was that a 15-second summary? Okay. Any, some, any uh, quick clarifying questions?